0: With Dr. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Holakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Holokwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in: 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter, uh, or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 3104410555. A uh, quick note about the radio station as you may have been hearing, we are switching our FM band or the way you could hear us if you listen through the radio from 100.3 HD3 we're moving to 94.7 HD3 and likely that'll happen sometime next week around the middle of the month. Um, This doesn't affect anyone who listens through the app, the website, uh, telephone or any other kind of way that you hear our station. It's just if you're listening in the Los Angeles or greater Los Angeles area through a radio through either your car or some kind of portable or home radio. So we'll be switching to 94.7 HD3, but you'll hear more announcements about that as the date uh, gets closer and we make that switch. Uh, I want to announce the book of the week for this week. It's The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy. And this is the first book that I'm doing as a book of the week that is not a nonfiction book, or this is a fiction book or work of literature. And of course, Leo Tolstoy is one of the most renowned authors of all time, so probably a good place to start. And this book has to deal with looking at the meaninglessness or how to live a meaningful life. Uh, and I have heard much about this book, but the author uh, Emily S. Fahani smith mentions it in her book, The Power of Meaning, and I thought maybe that'd be a good place to start with some literature. And I might even mention next week the benefits of reading literature. Sometimes people think, well... Um, It's a story or I want to learn information or knowledge. What could I get from literature? But the truth is we actually can get a whole lot. So the book for this week, and it's a short one, so maybe you can read it by next week, The Death of Ivan Ilyich uh, by Leo Tolstoy. Now, related to that topic, I just talked about um, a meaningful life or living a meaningless life. Uh, Last week, I gave a talk titled Redefining Success, and in developing what i would say for that talk some ideas came to my mind and one in particular i wanted to share today that relates to things i brought up before uh, but wanted to bring it up in a different way so when we think about success and what makes someone successful or if you close your eyes and try to picture someone successful usually you imagine uh, or the traditional way of measuring success or seeing Success is someone who has a lot of money, has a lot of fame, has a lot of likes and followers on social media, uh, and is well known and admired. And if we look at all those measurements, they're really things that the person is getting or receiving. So we're saying, how much money do they have? Have they gotten? How much fame do they have? Admiration, attention. Uh, again, followers, likes on social media, what have they gotten? That's how we tend to measure success. Um, And first of all, I think it's unfortunate that we tend to measure a successful person just based on their career. So we don't look at how they are as a father or mother, husband and wife and other roles in their life and just as a human being. We just measure their business. But even still, I, I don't agree with this notion of focusing on what someone gets or receives as the measurement of success. I actually think we need to turn that equation or turn that measurement around and measure someone in their success or try to measure success by how much someone gives, how much do they contribute. Um, by give, I don't just mean money, but I mean how much do they give of themselves, how much do they contribute to society, to the world, to the people around them through their career? How much do they give, not how much do they get, how much money do they get, or how much, um, attention or appreciation or validation, admiration, but how much do they give through their career? How much do they give to others? How much do they give to their family members and the people that they are responsible to in their lives? And how much kindness and love do they share with the world? To me, that should be our way of measuring success. And of course we can use that when we're evaluating others. So now we're saying, okay, how do I measure if someone is successful or not? But more importantly, we want to turn that on to ourselves and say, how will I measure success in my own life? And most of us traditionally think of it as those old ways of doing it. How much do I make? How much money is in my bank account? How much property do I have? Uh, How much am I admired? How much attention do I get? All those types of things. But I'm inviting everyone, and this includes myself, to switch that around and focus on well, how much am I giving? How much of myself do I give? Is my career something that I feel like contributes to others, to the world in some way, or is my career focused on making money for myself and disregarding who I hurt or how I hurt other people or rip them off or whatever else I do? Because unfortunately, the old way of measuring it, it doesn't matter if you rip someone off, if you become wealthy, you're considered a success. So you can be immoral, but still considered very, very successful. And actually using that using that measurement, a lot of the people who are successful in the world, in the sense of being very wealthy, have been immoral or not okay. I'm not saying everyone, but very often those people who have been uh, immoral or unethical or uh, disloyal to people around them have become very wealthy and are considered successful. And I think that's very, very unfortunate. But we can't affect directly what other people are gonna do or how they're gonna view this, but you can affect the way you approach your life, how you determine what you want to do to become successful. And when we look back on people's lives, and I haven't gotten to the end of the, the, this book, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, but when we look back at our lives, we don't tend to feel that we lived a fulfilled and meaningful life if we have gotten a lot. No one says, I really feel good about my life because of how much money I have in my bank account, or because people told me I was great, or I had a lot of fans. And we see this with, unfortunately, many famous people who are still very miserable and unhappy and don't feel good about themselves. Although we think that if I had the admiration of millions of people, I would feel good about myself or I would feel really good, we see the evidence shows us that this is not the case. It's not enough or it's not something lasting. It can be like a drug, something that gives you a a high and maybe even repeated highs, but it's not going to be something that will sustain you and keeping you feeling good about yourself and your life. So if we focus on what we think is going to make us happy, which is to make a lot of money and to get a lot of attention, unfortunately, we get to the end of life and realize uh, we had the ingredients wrong. We were trying to create the wrong things in our life. We were trying to get, we were trying to receive, we were trying to take when really the true bounty or meaningful life or a life that will lead us feeling content and fulfilled is one where we give. And so we can measure success by how much someone gives rather than how much they take. And I I use the analogy of the cup is half empty or half full. And taking that in another way is that we're all given a full cup, which is basically everything that we have to give to this world. And our duty, our responsibility is to empty that cup throughout our life so that when we get to the end of our life, our cup is completely empty and that we gave all that we had to everyone around us. Um, Through our arts and our talents and abilities, to our love and kindness, to whatever else we could do to provide for others, all while, of course, taking care of ourselves as well. Uh, When I gave the talk on Thursday, someone asked a question about, you know, we talk about giving of others and completely giving to everyone. What about ourselves? And that's a very good point. When I talk about giving to other people, it doesn't mean that we neglect ourselves or we don't love ourselves. We have to start first by loving ourselves and actually taking care of ourselves first out of love but also that will enable us to best help other people. If I'm not healthy or if I'm not rested or if I'm not feeling good, I'm not going to be able to contribute and give as much to other people and of course I suffer as well. So if we truly want to give the most of ourselves to other people, we actually have to take care of ourselves first and foremost. We have to make sure we are okay. And not only that, we also have to develop ourselves the best that we can be in order to contribute to other people. So whatever it is you do in your career, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the world to become the best at it that you can be, so that you give that to others in the best way. That allows you to give and contribute the most that you can give. And also even becoming a better person, a more kind person. Um, I'm reminded of the book, The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm, that you can develop your capacity and ability to show love, not just in the romantic sense, but to be a loving human being to all those around you. So we are responsible to become the best versions of ourselves and to continue working on ourselves, not so that we get loved more and more people will like us, but that so we can give more to others, that we can be more loving to those around us, to the world, Um, and even to ourselves as well. And the truth of the matter is, if you act in that way, you likely will receive love back. The more love you give, you tend to get more love back. Uh, You might even get admiration and, and all those good things from people around you. But the difference is your intention isn't to receive those things. Your intention is to give, to live a fulfilled life, to feel good about the actions that you're taking, to do the right thing, and in return you will receive many benefits Uh, absolutely but the intention is what is important and this goes back to the idea of what you do for your career if you're choosing to do something so that you get a lot you want to get a lot of attention a lot of fame that's a problem but if you decide to do something to give to others and do something that you're passionate about and you love and that contributes well there's a good chance you're going to make a lot of money or good money and you're going to be successful in the traditional sense as well but the intention and the motivation is different, and that's what leads to the feeling of a fulfilled and content life. So rather than measuring success by what we get, I think we need to switch that around and measure success by what we give, what we contribute, and how we share our love and kindness kindness with those around us and the world at large. All right, we've reached our first commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talaqui we'll be right back Um. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. I wanted to talk a bit about relationships, uh, a theme that people like to ask about a lot, and one that we're all really on a journey trying to understand better. There's no easy way to have a good and healthy relationship. That's why we have to keep working on it and also to keep studying about relationships. But something I've noticed, um, or it struck me recently, and I've seen it a lot, in relationships is this feeling that when couples are talking or arguing, and it doesn't have to just be couples, but there's this such a strong adversarial feeling that it seems as if they're in a courtroom. And so the theme I wanted to talk about right now is taking your relationship out of the courtroom. Um, and actually this this feeling of the courtroom becomes even more strong in couples therapy very often, where you feel like you really are in a Court case, and both sides are presenting their sides to you. So rather than calling me doctor or therapist, I almost feel like sometimes they should say, Your Honor, you know, Your Honor, my wife has done this and this and this, and here's the evidence against her, and I want you to tell her that she's wrong and bad, and I'm the right one. And then, of course, the other partner says, Your Honor, here's exhibit A showing that my husband is bad at being a husband and bad in these ways and you need to let him know that he's wrong and give him a verdict of guilty husband so that he has to make changes. Um, And usually when therapy becomes this way or when arguments become this way, we don't get anywhere because when we create an adversarial system or communication style, it becomes me against you, not us together. And so when you try to win the fights or be the better partner, say I'm the better husband or wife or better spouse, um, you don't get anywhere good as a couple together. You might feel good in the moment that you're the quote unquote better one or make yourself feel that way, but it doesn't work. And so if anything, it's almost as if you have to become the lawyer against yourself for the relationship to get better. Rather, Rather than trying to accuse your partner of being a bad husband or wife, a bad partner, you need to look at yourself and not in a way of judging yourself negatively or putting yourself down but turn your case toward yourself on how can I be a better partner because that's the only way things get better in a relationship is if we look at ourselves and say what can I do to be a better partner to my spouse it doesn't get better by just pointing the finger yelling and hoping they change for several reasons the biggest of which being that you can't control someone else you can't change someone else but we always have the power and responsibility and authority to change ourselves i can act differently but i can't make you act differently so if there's a problem in our relationship i do of course believe we have to share what we're unhappy about but the way we do that is very important but if there's a problem in our relationship rather than focusing on how my partner can make it better I have to focus on how can I make it better? What can I do? Is there not not enough love in this relationship? How could I uh, inject and put more love into this relationship? Are we not spending enough time together? How can I make sure I'm spending more time with my partner? Is there not enough honesty? Do I feel like I I don't trust my partner saying? How can I be more honest? And also how can I make sure I'm allowing uh, my partner the space and comfort to be honest with me? But we tend to go the easier route of just pointing fingers and just saying, well, that's it. And really, that's the easier route because it takes the responsibility out of our hands. Oh, it's just, oh, my husband is just so this, this, and this. So that's why our marriage is the way it is. Or my wife just, no matter what, she does blah, blah, blah. And that's the way it's going to be. And it's taking the easy way out rather than recognizing maybe there is more that we can do, but especially maybe there's more that I can do to make things better. So we have to take that uh, initiative and that responsibility that it's up to me to make the relationship better. So when I talk about taking your relationship out of the courtroom, that means that when you want to bring up an issue, you have to make sure you don't make it sound like you're accusing your partner of some heinous crime or something really bad, or that you are um, putting them down in some way. Because the quickest way to initiate a courtroom type style, or even we can talk like a war type of a style, is to have an attack on your partner. So if I tell you, "You you're such a lazy bum, you're never going to, and then whatever else I say, well, what's your reaction going to be? Almost always, I'm forcing you almost to take a defensive or offensive stance. I'm creating a war. So when you fire a shot, you've created a war. And if you start the conversation in that way, by putting your partner down, by uh, using anger and a negative tone, by using labeling words, so criticizing rather than complaining, not saying specifically you did this that I didn't like, but rather saying you are globally a jerk or lazy or inconsiderate or whatever else word you use. If we start the conversation in that way, in those negative ways, we have to be ready that we're gonna start a war. And John Gottman in his extensive research with married couples has found that the way you start a conversation, an argument, a disagreement, is likely gonna be how you end that conversation as well, whatever happens in the middle. So if you start the conversation with negativity, uh, insult, a harsh tone, anger, or even rage, you're likely going to end on that note too. It's not going to be a productive conversation if you start it that way. And that's why we have to be careful how we start the conversation or as John Gottman puts it, to have a soft startup, meaning that how you start the conversation should be in a soft way. So rather than starting off with accusations and attacks, it can be good to actually start with something loving and kind. So be aware of your tone because... We all know that as much as we try to be strong and secure in who we are or feel good about ourselves or we tell ourselves that, well, because I, if I have good self-esteem or self-confidence, I won't get affected by constructive criticism, we know that all of us don't like to hear criticism. We don't like to be told we did something wrong or we made a mistake or we do something our partner doesn't like. So we have to be ready that this is not going to be oh, an easy thing for someone to hear. Even though it's important for us to have these conversations, and by no means do I think that because it's hard for people to hear it, we shouldn't say them. Absolutely not. That's one of the biggest mistakes that couples make: is to not bring things up because they think it's going to be uncomfortable or an awkward conversation, or their partner won't like it, uh, so they shouldn't bring it up. Just because someone doesn't like something doesn't mean you don't bring it up. People don't like. The feeling of a flu shot, but it doesn't mean they shouldn't get them because they don't like the way it feels. Or uh, I don't like getting my blood drawn, but it doesn't mean I shouldn't do it because I don't like it. And similarly, in a relationship, you have to have a lot of conversations that on the surface or while they're happening, you probably won't like. They won't feel good. You'd rather not have them or rather do something else than to have those conversations. But by no means does that mean we shouldn't have them. A healthy relationship is going to be maintained by lots of what we consider uncomfortable conversations and bringing up issues uh, that might not be so pleasant to talk about in the moment. And actually, people tend to think that healthy couples pick their battles so they don't bring up stuff and they can hold on to a lot of things and only bring up the big issues. But actually, the research finds the opposite, that the healthy couples bring up more stuff. They bring it up They deal with it in a much better way. They handle it with love and care and respect for one another so those talks aren't negative in the way they end. But they don't avoid issues. They actually bring them up more, which to me makes a lot of sense because when I see couples who have become distant over the years, one of the core reasons is that they've avoided talking about a lot of things, um, including things that they are upset about in the relationship. And that debris and that... Um, build up of negative feelings, feeling disconnected, feeling that their partner doesn't care about them, keeps building and building. And that interferes with the connection and the relationship that the two people have. People don't grow apart overnight. It's a growth means we're talking about growing apart. We're saying there was time there where they could have actually come back together. So I'm a firm believer that you have to have those conversations in order to maintain your relationship. It reminds me kind of of brushing your teeth or getting a teeth cleaning where you have to remove the plaque and the other things that are in your teeth and gums to maintain a healthy mouth to maintain your dental health you have to do that similarly in a relationship if you don't get rid of those things they turn into cavities and infections and all sorts of bad things that are going to affect and eventually kill your relationship and that's what we don't want so the way we bring up the issue is very, very important. So we keep in mind, okay, my partner's not gonna be thrilled to hear this. So keeping them in mind, how can I bring this up in a soft and loving way that allows them to not feel so attacked and then because of that, not be defensive or offensive and start to attack me. And that's what we have to think about. And of course, this also becomes easier when we bring up issues more regularly, because if we hold on to things so long, well, guess what? When you bring it up, you're going to explode and attack your partner and maybe even yell and say, I've been you know, dealing with this for five years and you don't even change and you go off at them. And maybe your partner didn't know for five years you were unhappy about this. You haven't brought it to their attention. So the more quickly we bring things up, the easier it is for us to maintain this stance and to open the conversation in a soft, loving way that can allow for these conversations to end in a good place. And couples who take this approach and have conversations, and I know I'm saying it in a way that makes it sound so easy, but even in happy couples, they might get heated at, You know, when they have conversations. It's not that they never get mad and everything they say is perfectly calculated and said well. Even the happiest of couples make lots of mistakes in how they communicate, but it's the overall pattern and how much they say hurtful things to one another that has The big effect. But couples that have these talks regularly and handle them well, they actually start to recognize and they have more hope that the conversation will end well and it makes easier to have it again. So if you know, okay, this doesn't feel so great, but I know that it's going to be good for our relationship and I have faith because me and my partner have had lots of talks like this and ended in a good place, then you're not as afraid to bring them up. So fortunately, the more you Uh, face these conversations, the more you become comfortable with the discomfort, the more you recognize the good in this. It's just like if you start working out and you know it can be a little bit painful or it's going to hurt as far as the, the pain of your muscles being exerted, You start to realize, but it does feel good and afterwards I'm okay, so I can handle it. And so when you have these talks, you realize, okay, it doesn't feel great, but I'm okay. And actually more than I'm okay, I feel even closer to my partner and I feel like we have helped our relationship. So it's important to start in that soft way. Really, in some ways, a lot of fights and arguments are lost the second they start because the person opens it up in such a negative way that there's very little hope that the conversation will end positively. There's very little chance that they'll be able to recover from that initial attack. It's just like thinking between two countries. If they're trying to approach things with diplomacy, once one country fires the first bomb, unfortunately, it's not very likely that they're going to go back to a nice, peaceful diplomacy. They're probably going to have retaliations, and now a war has started. And we do the same thing with our partners. Once we send that firing shot, that attack, we've created a war with them, and it's not likely that we're going to end that conversation very well. Now, that being said, even in the midst of a argument, what healthy couples do is something that John Gottman calls repair attempts, meaning that even in the heat of a battle, first of all, the healthy couples don't disrespect each other no matter what. And that is very important. There's no room for that to disrespect. Even if you're so angry, you can maintain respect for your partner. And unfortunately, once we cross that line, it can be hard to uncross it. Once couples learn to curse at each other in negative ways or call each other really hurtful names, they tend to be weapons that they're going to use in future battles as well, unfortunately. It's hard to take those back. You can't take back what you said, but sometimes it's even hard to uncross that line and not say those things or go there anymore. But what healthy couples also do in the midst of their their, t- their fights or their arguments, something that John Gottman would realize is they would do something called repair attempts, which would often be somehow softening things up in the middle of the fight. For example, he talked about one couple who, um, they're in the middle of the fight and the husband just looked at the wife and stuck out his tongue, which was just like their five or six-year-old son would do. And the wife laughed and they kind of shared a moment where they connected. And it significantly diffused the tension and the anger in the conversation. It was kind of a reminder of, you know, I love you, you know, we love each other. We have this connection together. We have all these good things and brought it back to the goodness of the relationship and allowed them to approach the rest of the argument or conversation in a different way. Now, what he's found is sometimes in the the negative couples, the ones that are on a path towards divorce, either they don't make those attempts, so there isn't this uh, attempt to diffuse the situation and to make things a little bit more calm and peaceful between the two of them, but the partner, even if they do make one, the other one tends not to... Uh, Tends to ignore them, does not tend to respond to them. So in the story I shared, when the, the person stuck out his tongue, the wife laughed and they shared a moment and it was fine. But maybe in a more negative relationship, the partner would say, what are you doing? Or maybe make them feel bad about the joke they're trying to make or don't take this so lightly and it would become worse. So even in the midst of an argument, we can try to remember, okay, I'm getting so mad. She's getting so mad but maybe I can try to soften things up. And those things can potentially work. Um, But all in all, the important thing I would say is remembering that your relationship is not taking place in a courtroom. You're not supposed to win against your partner. It's such a natural human reaction. We're just focused on winning and being right. We'd almost rather be right than to win the conversation together with our partner. We'd rather win than to win together because we have this desire or feeling that we have to be proven right. But if we can approach the conversation as I want to win with my partner, I want us to win together, we have a very different intention and we will approach the argument and the conversation in a very different way. So we have to take the courtroom out of our relationships. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number is three one zero four four one zero five five five. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delacouy. We'll be right back. <music> Uh, this past weekend i was asked to talk uh, in front of the camera for sarah delpasan who wrote a book called the eye in life and she had asked a few individuals and she's doing a series where they talk about their talents or abilities when they discovered them and how they're sharing them and other questions as well and when i was there she asked us to prepare for some of the questions but some she wanted us to answer on the spot and one of the questions she asked me on the spot, which I thought was interesting is what advice I would give to my younger self. And I didn't really have much time to think of it. And she wanted us to, to just be on the spot and say what came to our mind. And what I said to my younger self, and I wanted to talk about it and elaborate it now, because I think, although I'd say it to my younger self, I think I'd say it to myself today and really say it to everyone to keep in mind. Um, but what I said, I would tell my younger self was that you are enough. Um, and by that, I mean that as I was, and then as I am now, and as any of us are to love and accept who we are at that time and that being whoever we are at that time is okay. It doesn't mean, of course, we want to stop growing and progressing, but that we accept who we are at that time and allow ourselves to be okay with that. Um, I think when I look back to my younger self, I d- definitely didn't feel that way. And I think it held me back. It held me back from asking for support, from showing that maybe I was struggling in certain ways, um, or to show that I wasn't doing as well as maybe some people thought I was doing. There was that fear of showing that vulnerability. And that fear of showing our true self comes from this idea that my true self is unlovable that if you see who i really am you're not going to love that so i have to show you something else i have to be something else or someone else for you now of course we express that as a judgment that other people have on us so we think you're going to think that you know i tell myself that but anytime we have that feeling we think other people are going to think this about me or even in general other people are going to think this we have to recognize that that is expressing something within ourselves, that I think that about me. So if I think people won't like the true me, well, unfortunately that means that I don't like the true me, or I don't think who I really am is lovable. That's really unfortunate because of course, as much as we can try to hide it from other people, not that we need to, we can't hide it from ourselves. And that means that we carry with us that feeling every day, every moment, that who I am is not good, who I am is not enough. Something about me or some things about me make me unlovable and not okay. And I think this is very unfortunate that we, we carry this with us so much. And that's why that feeling of I am enough or you are enough to me is a very meaningful one, um, to have that feeling of contentment and okayness with who I am in the moment. I described this idea a few weeks ago, and I'll bring it up again because it relates uh, with this idea of how we try to show ourselves as more well put together or even perfect. We put on these personas for each other to, to show that we are better than what we are or that we are less faulted or have less issues um, than people might think we have because we think that makes us not okay or that everyone else would think less of us. So the way I see it is that we all have imperfections. We all have weaknesses. We all have quote-unquote issues. We all have a lot of baggage we're carrying with us, a lot of pain, a lot of scars and wounds from our past that we take with us every day and we carry with us. But at the same time, the way we treat it as a society is that it's not okay to have these things or these things are negative or bad and we shouldn't show them to others because if we do, well, then people are not going to like us or love us. People will leave us. People won't be close to us. And we have to hide these things from one another. And so we all go along playing this kind of game of I won't show you mine, you don't show me yours. Make sure you uh, hold yourself together and keep it all together and I'm going to do the same thing. Where the sad truth is that we all have issues. We all have things going on that make us human are a part of being human and actually are some of the beautiful things that make us human and make us someone we can connect to but we think we have to hide them from one another and we think that everyone else has it all put together but me because we're all playing this game without telling each other we're playing this game so i meet you and you meet me and we say oh i'm good and you're good and we're all good everything is good oh great and then we leave and think oh like she was so good and everything is good but i know my life is not that good and i'm not that great But if we went into her head, she would be thinking and feeling the same thing. So the analogy I use is is as if when you came outside, you saw that everyone was eight feet tall. And you thought, oh, wow, everyone's eight feet tall, so I have to wear stilts. And I have to, of course, cover these stilts, because if anyone sees that I'm wearing these stilts, they'll know that I'm not actually eight feet tall, but that I am just pretending to be. So let me get these stilts and let me fashion them in a way with my clothes that no one can tell that i'm wearing them and then we walk around with these stilts which of course is going to make it harder to walk around but we're like there's no way i'm going to let myself be seen as less than or i'm going to show them who i truly am because who's going to like me i'd be a couple of feet shorter than everyone And everyone's the same height and everyone's doing well and it's just me who's not. So I have to make sure I wear these stilts every day. And it's uncomfortable and it's painful and two people come up to each other and they say, Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. You're good. And they're both eight feet tall and they can make some comments about what they're seeing from how high they are because everyone's at the same height and they go on to their day. But the sad part is that we're all walking around with this idea that everyone else has it put together. Everyone else is this tall. Everyone else is this strong perfect has no issues has no problems but really none of us is that so we're all pretending to be something that we think we have to be when none of us really is that thing none of us is that tall or none of us is this perfect well-polished person with no issues so carrying that analogy forward what i'm asking is that we all remove those stilts that we all come down to our true size and recognize that our true size is enough our true size is good enough and is lovable and also recognize that before we do that there's this idea to think that everyone else has it put together but you don't but that's not the case people walk around with that same feeling that you have there's actually something they call the uh, imposter syndrome i think something along those lines, that many people have in different areas, whether it's in their work or if they're in graduate school or some other place where they think everyone here has it put together but me or I don't belong here but everyone else does. I remember when I was in uh, in graduate school, they actually shared an article with us As first-year students about this topic that many graduate students when they enter a program think everyone else here is so much smarter than me or is supposed to be here uh, and they're better than me and if they actually knew how much of an imposter i am how much i'm not supposed to be here they would kick me out of here in a second so i have to pretend like i i know it better than i do and i can't show any weakness or vulnerability because then i'll show them my true colors and surely they'll kick me out of the program so just pretend like you're something that you're not and I thought it was actually really nice, and the more I reflected, I think it was nice that they shared that with us, for us to realize that that's a common feeling, and that actually probably most of your classmates share that feeling as well, and also don't believe that feeling. So if you are struggling or have some issues, talk to your classmates and also talk to faculty to get, get the support that you need. You don't have to go through it alone, and again, this idea that you are enough, If you're here, you're supposed to be here. If you're in this graduate program, you're supposed to be here. If you're in this job, you're supposed to be here. Doesn't mean it's going to feel easy or familiar or comfortable. But if you're here, you're supposed to be there. You are enough. And that that message to me is really important for us all to keep in mind that what we think makes us unlovable actually is something and oftentimes something that makes people love us or care about us more. When I uh, I really feel it's an honor to get to know people in therapy. People come in and they want to share with me, in order to hopefully get help, their true self or as much of themselves as they can. And although we think, well, it's therapy, so everyone's just so open, it's not black or white or it's not so simple. Even in the presence of a therapist, it's going to take time to start to open up and really Do we ever show our true self? You know, we can have a philosophical conversation about that, but maybe you never do to anyone, even to yourself and let alone to your therapist. But as people start to share more of who they are with me, um, you can tell at times there's things they feel embarrassed to share or they're looking at me in a way of how am I going to judge them with what they just shared or revealed about themselves or their history. And sometimes even explicitly people will bring it up saying that you know, and you could tell they've been holding it together and even in therapy trying to present a good image of themselves to me or what they thought was good and uh, you know, telling me things are okay and things aren't that bad and then now they take that leap, that risk and become vulnerable and share more of who they are and even explicitly sometimes they think or they'll say that they think I don't like them as much anymore or that I think less of them now that they shared what they did The persona and the image they had before was stronger and better and almost always I let them know and really it's basically always um, and I even feel it even if it doesn't come up explicitly that now I actually like the person or even you can say love the person more I have more compassion for them and I connect with them more and, and even see them in a better way so very often what we think is going to make us unlovable and push people away is actually what's going to make people feel that they can connect to us uh, they, they care for us and connect with us. It's not going to push them away. If anything, it actually, when done at the right time, in the right moment with the right people, is going to draw them in and make us feel more connected. And this isn't just true in the therapy room. It's true in our life in general. If we want to feel close to one another, it doesn't happen by just showing each other this perfect, smooth image of ourselves. It actually happens when we show those rough edges, those parts of ourselves, that we don't feel so good about or that are painful or uncomfortable. That's the only way we can connect with one another. And this is what we see in relationships when people, whether it's friendships or relationship, romantic relationships, but when they go on a first date and they're staring the, sharing the generals and it's you know nice and sweet and everyone's putting on a good image, it can be nice and you might feel an attraction or a draw. But the true feeling of intimacy and connection happens as they peel away those layers of that persona of who they Um, are trying to present to society and to others that they're okay and reveal more of themselves. That's when true intimacy is created through that vulnerability, that sharing, and that connecting. Two people can't be close to each other without sharing some things about themselves and starting to reveal who they are. And the only way we can take that risk is first we have to feel safe with the person Uh, safe and comfortable with the person we're talking to but we have to feel at some level that i'm enough that even in sharing this sharing who i truly am i still am enough i don't have to hide it and sometimes we can feel unsure and that's why it feels like such a risk but hopefully we'll take that risk recognizing that one it's the only way to create connection but two that you are enough you don't have to hide anything from anyone who you are as you are is enough and so that's why that statement came to my mind when i was asked what advice i'd give to my younger self is that that statement of i am enough or you are enough and i hope everyone listening hears that and says that to themselves as well because with that we get the courage to connect and share and be vulnerable and also to take the risks to grow to become the person we can be we're okay with who we are now but we also have the desire to continue Growing, and until we love and accept who we are in that moment, in this moment, it becomes almost impossible to take the risks to grow and to become the better person that we can become tomorrow. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delawqi. We'll be right back. <music> I wanted to bring up another topic today, one that is another common one I bring up, but I won't bring up exactly how it came up. But I came across it in my personal life, in a way, indirectly. So I wanted to bring it up, and that is the issue of suicide. I know it's one that people don't always like to talk about, and maybe feel I talk about it too much. But that's exactly why I do like to talk about it because I think it's one we avoid too often and too much and we need to talk about the reality of what is suicide and that it is something we we deal with and can face someone in your family most people who have experienced a family member die from suicide did not expect it we're not thinking it would happen to them like many tragedies of life we tend to think it only happens to other people we understand that it's real But we don't really understand that it can affect us too or affect someone close to us. Um, And suicide is one of those things that the less we talk about it, like many issues, the more of an effect it can have. Or the, the more it remains taboo, the bigger effect it has. And the opposite is also true. The more we talk about it and the less of a taboo it becomes, the more and more suicides we can prevent. And so one important thing that I notice in families, um, and not just with kids, but especially with kids, is this idea of denial when it comes to suicide. And by that, I mean that maybe their son or daughter, or someone we know says something related to suicide, but because we'd rather it not be true, and we're just hoping it'll go away, we just ignore it. We say, oh, you know, she just said something, or he said something, well he was angry, let's just not even bring it up. Um, One, with this feeling of denial, that hoping it's just not even true and it's not real and it's just going away. And also related to that, this added idea of, well, if I maybe bring it up, um, it might make it more likely. So I I don't want to tell my son or daughter to bring it up again because what if I give them that idea? And as I've mentioned so many times here before that that's not how suicide works. That if you bring it up to someone, they don't think, oh yeah, I never thought of that. Let me go ahead and do it. Or that if you bring it up, that means they're having approval and they're going to go ahead and take action. Um, But when you bring it up, you create a conversation that can potentially be life saving. So, as I say, if your loved one, whether it's a child, husband, wife, friend, family member, anyone, mentions anything related to suicide, um, I want to kill myself. I don't want to live anymore. I want to die. Uh, anything along those lines or hints at it in any way that you take it seriously no matter what and by take it seriously i don't mean that you immediately have to call 911 and call the authorities to come and lock the person up but i mean that you definitely don't ignore it you don't just say i hope it goes away i hope it was just something he or she said out of anger but they don't mean it or they're just saying that they would never act on it you take it seriously meaning You sit down and talk to that person about it. If you can, even in that moment, say, well, you know, you said you're thinking of killing yourself or you're so angry, you might, and they might say, no, I'm just so angry. I said that. I don't mean that. And you can let them know, I'm always going to take it seriously when you use that word. It shouldn't be something that we joke about. Unfortunately, I think we use it a lot in jokes or even in insults, especially in cyberbullying. It's something that people say a lot, kill yourself or things of that nature, unfortunately are very common. And it's something that we can, we say lightly in some way, of course, we're trying to insult the person, but generally we don't want them to actually commit suicide, but we say that, um, but let them know your loved one, that if you say that you're going to kill yourself or you mention something like that, I'm always going to take it seriously and make sure that you always do. Uh, I, I work with families sometimes with teenagers and they say, oh, you know, one time he said something like this, but I don't think he really meant it. And, you know, they just, even in how they say it, and maybe you heard me whispering, it's like, they're just sweeping it under the rug. Like, you know, he said that, but he doesn't mean anything by it. And yes, very often they don't mean something by it, but of course the times that they do, well, that's huge. And again, it can be life-saving and you don't want to find yourself in that situation where you ignored, uh, a potentially life-saving. Threatening or a life saving warning that you are given by a loved one. So, we always want to take that as seriously as we can and let your kids know also that we're going to take it seriously. And also, this helps in not allowing it to become a kind of bargaining chip or uh, a tool of manipulation. Yes, do some people say they're suicidal to get attention? It does happen. Do some people even attempt suicide to get attention? That does happen. As well. Um, But of course, that doesn't mean we want to take it lightly or assume that's what's going on, because of course, many people do intend and do take their lives. So we don't want to risk that. But yes, it does happen that people say that. And if we take it seriously, that actually takes away that threat a lot more. So if you say I'm going to call or if we really are, we might have to call the police. Um, so please don't joke like that. Then they know that you're taking it seriously. But if you don't, then they might bring it up and create this uneasiness of you. Of Do they really mean it? Are they just saying it? Are they threatening it? What if this time they're actually serious and that's not something you want to create in yourself and you don't want to give them that idea that they can just throw out that word and use it as a, uh, a manipulation tool or a bargaining chip in, in a fight or argument or to try to get you to do something. You let them know we're taking it seriously. Every time. So don't joke about that. If you say it, it's possibly we will call or take you to a hospital or call the authorities to come. We're not taking that lightly. That's not something to joke about. Uh, And you can let them know. Um, And as I talk about suicide, it's not always that they're going to give you a very clear threat. Yes, sometimes they do say, I want to take my life or I want to die or I don't want to live anymore. But other times it's more indirect or you might start to see signs of very severe depression and you might wonder about that. And again, here's where the denial comes into play, where people think, well, the person's really depressed, but come on, like they're not going to do that. And as I said before, very often when people have taken their own lives, people weren't totally expecting it. It's not like it was very clear. In hindsight, they might recognize signs, but it's not always jumping out at you so clearly so that means you do have to be partially vigilant about that and if there are those signs as i always say don't be afraid to talk about it don't think that by bringing it up you're going to give them the idea to do it or that by bringing it up you're telling them it's okay or allowing them to do it or that you are insulting them in some way so if you feel like a friend family member especially your child might be suicidal don't be afraid to ask them Now, of course, you want to bring it up in a sensitive, caring, respectful way. Absolutely, you want to make sure other people are not around, to not embarrass or shame them, or even to allow them to be honest, because if there's other people around, they might not feel comfortable to be honest. But you want to have a sit-down and serious talk with them. And when I was a kid, you would watch um, family sitcoms, and there was always those serious talks they'd have, for example, on Full House, where it would have the music in the background, and the dad would be talking to one of the girls, Um, and it was kind of cheesy and, you know, this moment that maybe we're watching, we're like, does that ever happen in real life? And maybe without the music, but yes, those should happen in real life where you have these sit down conversations with your kids in very serious ways, where you let them know that this is a big issue and I want to talk to you about it and have a good conversation about it. So as I've mentioned before, when you do that, when you feel like someone is suicidal, again, the fear should not be be to introduce the idea, um, but recognize that if you bring it up, yes, maybe they're not. And if you're not, more than likely you get one of a few responses. One might be, they might even laugh or think, oh, I can't believe you thought I was that down, you know, because I'm not, um, I'm not even close to that, which, okay, it lets you know and gives you that reassurance of what's going on or they might say no I'm feeling really down but I won't I'm not thinking about that at all or I haven't gotten there Um, but as I think is very important is that even if you get that answer that they say no even if they laugh about it um, what you have done is you've also created a bridge between you and that individual that if they ever are feeling that down or that if they ever are considering suicide or it comes to their mind you've let them know that you're okay talking about it You can have that conversation with me. I'm not someone that's afraid to talk about that. I care about you. Uh, I worry about you. I'm here for you. And if you want to have that conversation, that's not something I'm afraid of. Because unfortunately, many people, along with us being afraid to to bring it up to someone else, even if they're feeling that way, they have a hard time bringing it up to someone because they're afraid of how they're going to react or respond. Will they be judged or put down Will the person overreact? Uh, shame them? Ridicule them? What might it be? You know, it's not an easy thing to tell someone that you're suicidal. It's a very hard thing for many people to bring up, and unfortunately, that fear of bringing it up can lead to them holding it in and just acting on it, uh, without having a conversation that could potentially prevent it. But you're letting them know: Look, I'm willing to have that conversation with you. You don't have to be afraid to bring that up with me. And as a parent, uh, having that type of a relationship with your child is priceless and of course not just about suicide but whatever it is they might be struggling with letting them know that you don't have to be afraid to bring up something with me i'm willing and i'm capable and strong enough to handle the conversation and i'm going to approach you with love and kindness and be there for you and support you that is really really important Uh, sometimes parents talk about techniques how do i do this how do i do that But bigger than that is the relationship you build with your kids and that feeling of comfort they have with you, that feeling that you'll be there for them and they can come to you with anything. That's something that it's not just one technique, it's built over years, but you can invest in that and creating that kind of relationship with your child that they know that they can talk to you. So to me, those types of bridges are priceless, whether it's with your kids or also um, with Uh, a family member, a friend, or even someone you're in a relationship with, letting them know that you can talk about things, that's a bridge that you build that will always be there. And if it ever needs to be crossed, uh, you'll be grateful that you built that bridge when that time does come. And of course, the other alternative is you ask them if they're suicidal and they say yes. And here's where you've potentially in that moment saved a life. Um, And many people, they're afraid to ask the question precisely because they're afraid the answer is yes. Now, although we don't want the person to take that act, we're also afraid of, well, what do I do? I don't know what to do. Will I know what to do? Can I save them? Uh, And the answer is that you're not supposed to save them by yourself. Don't think that because the person just confided in you, that you have to fix it alone. You usually can't. Even if you're a mental health professional, you probably will need some kind of supports, including the family. It's not going to be just about you so you need help and even you might have to tell the person they might say if i tell you this don't tell anyone and you might say when they tell you that that i i can't keep this to myself because i'm concerned about your safety i'm concerned about your health i can't i wouldn't feel comfortable letting you go or letting us deal with it just me and you so i I might have to get some help so you don't want to do it necessarily behind their back you might have to if literally they're to that point but you let them know that I can't handle this alone. And that's the important part. Don't think you have to fix it yourself. That person needs help. They need support from their friends and family more than just you, not just one person. And very likely they're going to need some kind of psychiatric or psychological intervention, some kind of help. It's not just going to go away. Um, They might say, oh, you know, I'm not suicidal anymore. And you think, okay, well, this is past. But them getting to that point of being suicidal means that they need some help. And we shouldn't ignore that. Again, taking it seriously means that we seriously address the issue. We try to get involved. So don't be afraid to ask out of that fear that I won't know what to do or I can't handle it. Because you're not supposed to handle it on your own. That's too much pressure to put on you. And, and I see this happening a lot even with teenagers. A, a teenager will tell another teenager that they're suicidal and say just keep it between us. And the person thinks they need to do that. It even can give us this really good feeling that wow i'm like this hero i'm the only person they want to tell and i'm going to be the one that saves them but we we don't want to put that pressure on ourselves and we're really not uh, helping that other person we have to recognize that this is coming from a selfish place of giving myself a good feeling not about taking care of and helping this person That's not out of love. So if someone comes to us and says, I I have a gunshot wound and I want you to be the one that saves me and then you try to patch them up yourself, that's not a loving thing to do. They need more help than you can give them. And the most loving thing and the most caring thing you can do is to get them to that help, to not take it on yourself. So when someone is in that state, don't think it's up to you to handle it alone. And that can take off some of the pressure of, well, if they say yes, what do I do? You're going to need help. You're going to need other resources, but it's not up to you to to handle it alone. But again, the bottom line is to always take any type of mention of suicide seriously. We don't want to make it something that we ignore or something that we try to deny. We always take it seriously. And also with your kids, don't be afraid to talk about suicide. Don't be afraid to have conversations about it. Or if someone dies in the media from it, you can talk to them about it. That could be a great opening. Oh, did you hear that so-and-so had died or if they tell you and then you can talk about it especially once they're of age Uh, and you know maybe another show i'll talk about how to talk to different ages about that but you can talk to them about what happened and let them know and that can be an opportunity that you know sometimes people when they get very down depressed and they're sometimes even with younger kids you say their brains are not working quite right something's not working they can feel that way that they want to kill themselves um, but I want you to know that you can always tell me if you have any thoughts or fears about hurting yourself, and I'll be there for you. So we want to make sure we don't avoid these taboo topics, but face them head-on, because when they're taboo, people suffer in silence, and we face the consequences. But when we talk about them, we can prevent a lot of horrible things from happening. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310 4410555 We'll be right back. Thank you. In the previous segment, I talked about suicide and the importance of anyone, but especially for parents, to create the type of relationship with your kids where they can talk to you about these kinds of issues or to actually bring those issues up yourself to demonstrate to them that we can have these kinds of conversations, that essentially no conversation or topic is off limits. You can bring up anything you want with me. And this isn't just true about Suicide, yes, that's an extremely important issue and an extreme issue, one that can have dire consequences, but the importance of this type of relationship cannot be underestimated. Very often parents bring their teenagers into therapy and they essentially want me or another therapist to play spy for them because I don't know, he or she doesn't tell me anything. I don't know what's going on in their life and I want you to tell me. Now, I always let them know that although your child might be a minor, I respect my teenage clients as adults. Doesn't mean I won't tell you anything, but I don't want you to think I'm just going to come spy on them and tell you what's going on. Because, of course, therapy doesn't work that way. One of the things that allows for a therapeutic process to develop and for that relationship to develop between the therapist and the client is for the client to feel comfortable that they can be open and share what they want without Getting judged by the therapist, but even bigger, not facing consequences from people in their lives. So if they start to open up to the therapist that I did this or I've done that, and then the therapist goes and tells the parents immediately, and the kid gets punished, well, how open do we imagine that child is going to be in the next therapy session, or how much do we think they're going to trust that therapist? Not very much. Um, So very often, Parents have this idea that they need to find someone to tell them what's going on in their kids' lives because they can't get it from them. Now naturally, when kids get older, they should keep more things from their parents. They deserved more privacy, and more of their life is going to, in a way be off limits from the parents. They're not going to know about everything that's going on with all their friends, and maybe even if they're interested in someone and dating, they probably won't tell their parents, and that's okay. They need to have that space. And even in their natural development in their social and emotional development, as kids become teenagers, more of their um, social connection, more of what they value as far as people's opinions and who they want to communicate with becomes their peers more than their parents. And this can be a surprise and very disheartening for for a lot of parents. They say, well, when he was a kid, he'd love to go to the movie with us you know, he would want to go out with us, he wanted to hang out with us, he always wanted to talk to us and see what we have to say. And now I have to drop him off two blocks away from school so that his friends don't see me or don't see the car or whatever it might be that they're embarrassed about and it feels really bad. Or now she won't dare come out with us anymore for, you know, to go to the movies or to go to dinner. She would rather be with her friends. And part of this is a natural development and we have to give our kids that space to become teenagers and actually go through what they need to, which is to experience more connection with their peers and their, their bigger support group at that point. It can be hard for parents, especially parents who wanted to create a dependent relationship, um, who really were doing it more for them than for the kids. But it can be hard for any parents to see their child becoming more distant, but some of that is necessary and okay. Now, at the same time, this doesn't mean we have to be totally disconnected from our kids either we can have a connection with them. And how do we build that connection? It's not a one technique kind of an answer. Building relationships involves countless minutes and hours of interactions and various behaviors and ways of interacting over the years that help to develop a type of relationship. But a few things do stand out. One is how judgmental we are. Now, this isn't just true about our kids so yes of course it's very important how you respond to your child if you're judging them if you're comparing them to other kids and saying they're better than them um, or just judging things they do or don't do constantly criticizing them that's going to create judgmentalness but another way that children see how judgmental their parents are is how they interact with others or even how they talk about others so if you're watching tv with your kid you say oh look at that idiot over there that guy so this Or that group of people are so stupid. Or if you have this kind of job, you're a loser. Or whatever other comments you might make that are very strong and judgmental about other people. Now you might think, well, it's about other people. But kids are very aware that, of course, how you talk about other people could be how they might be. So although they might not be the victim of your anger right now or your judgment, they might fall into some group that gets that kind of judgment from you. So right now they might not be the loser, but they're going to be scared of being a loser in your eyes. It's kind of like friends who gossip too much about other people in negative ways. And we think, well, it's so fun. We're connecting with each other. But very often what that also makes you feel is that, well, when I'm not around, does this person say negative things about me? If they're saying negative things about our other friends and we're joking and laughing and it seems like fun, what do they say when I'm not around? And it doesn't feel very good. So the same thing happens when we talk about judgments in general. If you're a judgmental person, constantly putting other people down, judging, labeling, um, saying these people are better than those people, we're better than them, that doesn't feel very good. Even if you're telling your kid we're better than other people. Oh, as, as Persians, we're so much better than such and such group makes or so much more classy or that's more educated or whatever you tell yourself and you think well i'm telling my kid we're this that's not good for your child first of all it's a good not a good mindset to have in general but to either teach your child that is not good Uh, and on top of that it's not good to give them that idea that i'm going to put people above and below one another because again it gives them that idea that you can fall into that lower group right now you're not but maybe somewhere else they will be so that doesn't give them that good feeling Another very big issue here is how you respond to what might be considered negative things, whether it's negative feelings, negative incidents, negative reactions from your child. The way you respond to those are very, very important. So there's a few ways that parents get this wrong. And a lot of them tend to be kind of almost automatic reactions, but they are things we can work on. One is the the overly anxious and worried parent. Could be mom or dad. We might generally think it's the mom, but it could be both. So your kid falls and scrapes your knee, and you just lose your mind as if they fell off the top of a building, you know, and you're, and you're going crazy and going wild. And that just sends to your kid this message that if I share negative things or if something bad happens and I share it with my mom or my dad, they're going to go crazy. They can't handle it. They're actually going to make it worse. And that's actually what we're doing in those situations. If someone, scrapes their knee yes it's painful and you can respond with empathy and show them that you care but when you overreact so strongly that now you're uh, going crazy and yelling and screaming and losing your mind which a lot of parents think that shows how much I love my kid because I'm showing them even the scraping of their knee is going to drive me crazy but it just makes your kid feel worse they're almost going to have to feel like they have to take care of you and that's exactly what they do next time they scrape their knee they might actually not show it to you They'll try to cover it up because they don't want to give you that reaction and that response so when we overreact although we might think it's coming from a loving place that doesn't feel good for our kids it doesn't give them that feeling of safety and security and stability and that feeling that they can come to you when something goes wrong because you've shown them that you might overreact another way that parents sometimes can overreact is by getting too involved Um, the kid falls, and then they're going to go and file a lawsuit at the school that something wrong happened here, and we need to get to the bottom of this. And they yell at everyone at the school and the teachers and the yard people, and the kid's just like, oh my gosh, my parent gets too involved. Like, I can't let them know what's going on in my life. I don't want to deal with this every time something happens, so I'm going to keep things from them. Uh, Another way that parents can overreact or react in a negative way is by uh, getting very upset with someone, when they make a mistake or do something wrong. And this is related to the judgmentalist. So they don't do their homework or they get in some kind of trouble and you get so mad at them and make them feel so bad or even in more extreme cases physically abuse them um, or verbally or emotionally abuse them. Well, of course, they're going to keep things from you. Of course, they're not going to want to share when something is going on so when we react too strongly and again we might think it's because i'm you know i want to teach him or her what's right and wrong and instill in them good values uh, it doesn't work first of all what kind of value are you instilling in them that where you show them that physically harming someone is a way of relating to them um, but nonetheless it's not a way of teaching them something it only teaches them fear fear of punishment and that you should try to avoid punishment not that There's value in doing good things and doing the right things. So when we overreact in our punishments and how harsh we respond, that also is going to lead to the person not sharing with us as much, withholding things in. And this also relates to things like uh, telling us the truth about something or being honest about a mistake they made. Rather than emphasizing that we appreciate their honesty, I know it wasn't easy to tell me that you broke the vase, but I really appreciate that you did. And there could still even be consequences. So I'm not just saying you say, I appreciate your honesty and now everything is okay. You can say, I really appreciate your honesty and emphasize that and say, but what do you think would be a fair response to this? What should we do? So there can still be consequences, but you don't uh, harp on the fact or you at least acknowledge the fact of their honesty. Because we know that if your kid is lying to you, and I work with a lot of families and say, oh, this kid is such a liar. My kid is such a liar. And they think somehow they're painting this picture of this horrible kid, that they were somehow given a defective child. Um, and really they don't see how much they're just telling me how poorly they've parented this kid. If your kid is lying to you, is hiding things from you, that means that you don't make it easy for them to tell you the truth. You don't make it Uh, You don't make them feel good when they share something negative going on in their life. Uh, Another thing that they can sometimes do is being too intrusive. People say, he doesn't tell me anything or she doesn't tell me anything. Well, if you're constantly digging at them and trying to snoop on them, spying on them, checking their phone, trying to overhear their conversations, that intrusiveness is just going to create this reaction of pushing you back. So if you're too, try to be too involved... Uh, it actually backfires and you become less involved. Your child will push you out, will push you away. So if you want to be closer with your kids, if you want to have them open up with you and they're not, recognize that first of all, there's no one conversation or one step solution. We're talking about a relationship here. They have to feel that comfort with you. And if they haven't been feeling it for years, it's not going to change overnight. It's going to be a process. Um, But recognize that it's going to involve you being more receptive and warm to them, showing them that they can communicate with you, giving them the space to talk to you, but also being there. So this can sometimes be a delicate balance. We don't want to ignore them completely and not um, create those conversations, but we don't also want to intrude on them. Uh, and force them to have those conversations. What I always tell parents is that if you think you're having a conversation with your kids and you find that you're talking five times more than they are, that's not a conversation. That's a lecture. And lecturing doesn't go very far. So if it's going that way, then just stop the conversation and say, okay, my child doesn't want to have this conversation. You can't force a conversation to happen. It has to be by two willing partners. So pay attention to that. Am I creating space with my kid to allow them to talk or am I just telling them something and sometimes parents even ask their kids questions that don't allow for a conversation why don't you ever do your homework what what can a kid say to that there's no real response to that now maybe you're concerned about them you want to know what's going on but you can ask that in a very different way but when you attack them it's actually similar to what I was saying before in romantic relationships but it's true of any conversation. If you attack them, they're just going to hide and try to show you the best image they can and to get away from the situation as much as they can. So it's up to you as a parent to create the type of relationship and the type of environment that allows for your child to open up to you. If you find that your child is hiding things from you, lying to you, rather than blaming them as being bad or defective or that they're the problem, again, point the finger back to yourself and see. What am I doing that's creating this relationship? And what can I do to allow my child to feel more comfortable with me, to make it more okay for him or her to share things with me? Because it's up to me to create that, not on the child. All right, we're at our last commercial break for the show. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacoui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air.
1: Yes, how are you, doctor?
0: I'm good, thank you. Thanks for calling.
1: I have a question to ask you, and it's in regards to kids and candy.
0: Okay. Um, Both very sweet how- things, okay, kids and candy. Let's hear it.
1: Um, however, many times I tell my kids, you know, candy has sugar bugs, candy is not good for you, yet I don't deprive them from them because... Uh-huh. I don't want them to go have it behind my back or when they go to a friend's house they like eat it so much and they I mm-hmm. don't want them not to be comfortable to do it in front of me. But my question is they feel comfortable, "Oh mom, can we have a candy? Oh mom, can I have a piece of chocolate?" Mm-hmm. How where do I draw the line?
0: Yeah, like, that's yeah, that's a good question. You know, these things are obviously complicated issues there's not one way because it's not a black or white thing we're not saying they should never have it and of course they shouldn't have it every time they want it either Um, and so it's good that you're saying you feel you have a they have a comfortable relationship with you to ask you uh, but how we deal with it is important now although we're going to be open with them and we want them to be open with us it doesn't mean we'll always give them what they want a kid might say, exactly. "I want st- to, I want to stay awake till one in the morning and watch TV." And you say, "You know, we have to help you get to sleep on time so you're rested tomorrow and you're not tired all day tomorrow long, all day long." So you want to have a conversation with them in general about it, where you know, and you don't have to make it, uh, you don't have to dramatize it. Sometimes parents think we have to make it worse. There's these things, and if you have candy and it's going to go in your teeth and you're going to get this and yeah there's some truth to that but we don't have to horrify them or make them afraid of it we can let them know the truth that these things aren't so good for us and they we have to limit how much we have we all could be aware not even just limit but how much we have but more important than even that we have to make sure we we create a lot of healthy foods in the home constantly that are they have full access to that and even that those are visible and that can have effect too. So they should be able to see the healthy foods they like. So if you know your kid likes uh, apples, you make sure there's always, you know, apples around. Or if they like this other thing, you make sure they always have them that they like and they make sure they're there. You know, the thing with things like sweets or junk food or even video games or iPads and um, TV shows that kids might like is that they are kind of like drugs that once you expose them to them too much, they don't like the other things that are actually healthier for them so if you give your kid mcdonald's every day for a month they're not going to want to have healthy foods anymore but if you give a child healthy foods from when they're born they crave vegetables and fruits and good things or if you interact with them and engage with them every day Uh, they're going to want to play with you in that way. But if you sit them them in front of the TV and they watch six hours of TV anymore, now they need that type of stimulation in order to feel okay. So if you now try to play with them in something that's slow-paced, they won't be able to handle it. They won't have the attention to enjoy it or they won't feel stimulated enough and they're going to get bored and get even frustrated and angry. So we have to be very aware of what we introduce to our kids. Not in a black or white way, but in what we introduce, sometimes it's hard to take it away. If your kids have candy every single night, they're going to want to have candy every single night. And I know Halloween just passed, so a lot of times kids, (laughs) they have extra... (laughs) They
1: went to Halloween and they got a bunch of candy and chocolate and now that they have this whole thing okay mm-hmm. let's donate some of these to people who are not fortunate enough to go trick or treating
0: mm-hmm.
1: so okay they donated some of it so they were okay they with that. Okay. Uh, how old yeah, are your kids one of them is eight and one of them is five
0: five okay that that's very sweet that they were okay uh donating their candy they And they
1: donated some of it but they kept some of it and sure. that's some that they kept so like Every other day, mom, can we have a candy from our Halloween treats? Too? And then sometimes I get so frustrated and I say, you know what? It's your choice. You know what candy does to your teeth. But I get so frustrated that I just say these things like, you know, candy has sugar bugs. It's your choice. You want to have it. You'll make the decision. And like when we go to the dentist's office, you yeah. guys respond to your, your doctor.
0: Right. Mom. But that's kind of like the classic Persian, the Persian thing where they say, <laughs> nagu kind of a thing right like okay fine do whatever you want but you're gonna get hurt and almost like i don't you make it sound like you don't care which you do care but you're getting so angry and frustrated that you're saying yeah do the thing i'm saying not to do and watch how it's gonna hurt you which isn't really i I understand you're frustrated but it's not a great approach it's not coming from the the right place because first of all your kids aren't supposed to just listen to you even at five and eight but especially as they get older to than that they're going to listen to you less so and they they should be listening to you less so we want to have conversations with them and you can build boundaries you know and and one thing we I always tell parents um, and I, I heard this myself from Daniel Siegel and others is we always say yes to the feeling but we don't have to say yes to the request or the behavior so a kid can say oh mom you know I want to play until one in the morning and have so much fun tonight right and you tell them oh I know you're having such a good time playing let's say if they're have a friend over or they're playing with their mom or dad I know you're having so much fun so you're saying yes to the feeling I get how fun this is that you don't want to stop but you know we have to make sure we keep our bedtime because remember and then you could you know you hopefully have a relationship with them where you can talk to them about remember that one night we slept late and everyone was tired the next day and they say oh yeah and like the next day you were all frustrated at school or you got angry that's why we have to make sure we get enough sleep you know so you have a conversation with them where you remind them that yes it makes sense that you want to do this it makes sense to want to have candy it tastes good so you can talk about the sugar bug yeah right so (laughs) we can talk about it can yeah it's very easy to say when you know this is something that we all do when we're talking to someone else it's very easy to talk about delaying gratification and making the right choices, right? So if someone tells you, oh, I'm having such a hard time waking up to go to the gym in the morning, like, well, health is important. You got to exercise. So you just got to get up and go there and do it, which in a way is true. But of course, it's easier said than done. We all have that struggle. So, you know, when your kids say they want candy, they're not saying something weird. Um, you know, it makes sense. Kids like candy. Everyone likes candy. It tastes good, but yes, we have to be aware of how much we eat because it can be bad for us. So you can set limits. So I would say here, it's a good place to set limits that, you know, candy tastes, you guys like the candy. It tastes good, but you know, we have to make sure we also eat lots of good food. So I'd almost focus on that rather than you can't have candy more on okay. it's we have to make sure we have enough good foods and if we have candy we don't have enough room for the other good foods too so because of that we can only and then you can make a limit we can you can each pick one piece of candy a day and and Butter. that and even have a conversation with them make sure they're even the five-year-old as much as we might think well she he or she is too little but no I'd say have a conversation with them of okay how many pieces do you think is good and they might say 50 you know sometimes kids say so well yeah. you know I know and even again you can say yes to the feeling I get it like it feels so good to have all the candy and it's so tasty but you know I think if you have 50 pieces you're probably gonna feel sick it doesn't feel very good what do you think and you know, you have that conversation. You say, okay, what do do you think about? And then maybe you say one and then they say two and maybe that's okay. But you come to some answer that makes sense. Okay, we're going to have just two pieces of candy every day. That's our limit or one piece of candy until we finish the, the Halloween candy. And that's our limit, something like that. So you can make that limit with them. And again, making sure they're a part of making that rule and that limit is much more likely to have them follow it and be okay with it. So, maybe you guys make that rule. And then tomorrow, one of them says they already had their one, like, oh, but I really want another one. And this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Sometimes we can say be flexible, but I think actually keeping the limit would be better. And you say, you know, I know you really want it. It tastes good. But you remember, we came up with that rule of one a day. And I think that makes sense. So let's, what do you think? You could have another one again tomorrow, but we're, we're going to have to wait till tomorrow and you'll get to have one then and have a conversation okay. with them. You know, so This way you're showing them, you know, because the way I get you're getting frustrated with them. And even what you said was interesting. You said, I want candy, right? And sometimes we take out our own frustrations on our kids. Sometimes we get mad at our own inability to control our desires and what we want. And... Um, because of that, we take it out on our kids because we see that in them, like, oh, like this greed and this, uh, you know, stupidity of having something that's bad for you, but it's because you're actually mad at yourself for making that decision a lot of times. And so recognizing that is important. I remember there's this uh, kind of fable of there's this wise healer and this family brought their child that's similar to your story in a way they brought their child and said, our child has an issue with sweets and the person said the healer said okay well you have to come back in one week and they came back in a week and he kind of told them what to do and they said why did you have to come back in one week and he said well it's because i have my own issue with sweet so i had to work on it myself and think about it before i could help you guys so when oh. you're trying to help your kids it's remembering that you have maybe your own issues related to this too and we want to be aware because whether we do it consciously we definitely unconsciously take it out on our kids so we want to be careful that you're not putting that onto them this feeling of oh you're making stupid decisions you know it's bad for you go ruin your teeth see if i care because you do care you care about their teeth but out of your anger that they're uh, which could be again directed toward yourself that you're projecting onto them you're taking it out on them so we want to make sure you don't do that and make them feel bad about this desire which we just talked about makes sense desire to have chocolate and candy is not weird that they want that it's pretty human but we have to be aware that we can't just have it all the time or as much as we're craving all the time because it can have negative consequences and like I said I'd focus more on eating the healthy things rather than the not eating of the bad things Um, make that the focus so again it's like getting your homework done rather than not doing the bad things we always want to focus on the good rather than telling them not to do the bad
1: Thank you so much, darling.
0: Sure. Good luck. It's a, You know, you're not the first parent to deal with this. So, of course, good luck with that. But always making it a collaborative process, showing them from this age. And I, I take that with everything. With their bedtime, I say make it with your kids. Don't just tell them 8 o'clock is when you're in your bed no matter what. That doesn't really work. But if you talk to them about it and make them be part of it, and again, explain why sleeping is important and why we want to make sure we're rested because we feel better and we're at school and we don't sleep, we're tired, we don't learn as well, uh, we don't have as good of a mood, we don't have as much fun with our friends. You know, we want to promote the good things rather than putting restrictions on them, telling them don't do these things. Okay. Thank you so much. Or Thank you very much. Have a great day.
1: Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank
0: you. So that's an important message for us to keep in mind. When it comes to our kids, there's, you know, we don't want to create a lot of rules and make it a, a kind of too strict of a home, but there does need to be some boundaries and some limits on things. It's just the only way things are going to work. And as I said with the caller, you can always say yes to the feeling, but no to the behavior, the action or the request. So a kid says, oh, I want to go play outside right now, but it's raining and it's cold and you have to leave the house in five minutes. And you might say, oh, I know you really want to, go play. But if you go outside and you get dirty, we have to go in in five minutes. There's not going to be enough time. So I know as much as you want to play, we got to just stay inside it. And then also add this part, but you can play when we get home tonight or you can play tomorrow. Show them that you care about the request, you value it. And it's not that they'll never get to do what they want to do, but at this time, it's not the right time to do it. So you want to let them know that, yes, I'm hearing you. I understand I'm empathizing with you, but I can't, as someone who's caring for you, I can't always give you exactly what you want in that moment. And it's something we do with ourselves. You know, you wake up and you say, oh, I wish I can just go back to sleep. And you don't have to be harsh on yourself and say, oh, you're a lazy bum, you're an idiot, you're stupid, you're never going to get anywhere. Say, no, it makes sense. I'm pretty tired this morning. It would really feel nice to sleep some more, but you can still say no to the behavior that you're requesting and just say, you know, but I got to get up and hop in the shower and get to work because that's what I need to do today. So you can even do that um, with yourself. But when it comes to setting rules with your kids, also making it collaborative, has shown to be make it more likely one it gives them that empowerment that I what I say matters, what I have to think matters. My parents care about that, but also it leads to better results in that they're more likely to follow a rule if they were part of creating that rule and that boundary. They feel an ownership of that. This is true of kids and even true of work environments as well. When you make it collaborative, people are more likely to follow the rules because they feel like, well, I made it myself. I believe in this. All right, we've reached the end of today's program. Again, the book of the week for this week is The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolso. I hope you'll join me in reading that. And also this Sunday, November 12th at 5.30 p.m. at the Squirball Cultural Center, Brandon Purmaradi is doing his uh, piano concert to raise money for Hurricane Harvey relief. And I'll be there this Sunday and I hope to see you there to raise money for a great cause and also to see this uh, brilliant young man perform Um, and he's very talented and I'm looking forward to seeing him this Sunday so that's this coming Sunday November 12th at 5.30pm Skirball Cultural Center tickets are available at All right, thank you to all the callers and the listeners and to Ramon and also Edris who are here in the studio with me today you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui have a wonderful day